This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. People of Papua New Guinea will vote in their national election from the 24th of June and it's a significant one after a really difficult period of government for incumbent Prime Minister Peter O'Neill and also at this election long-term political player Michael Samare is bowing out. As a rule we don't know all that much about PNG politics in Australia although we should, it's our nearest neighbour so help us out with some of the details and also talk about what's at stake. We have Bell Karma with us, he's PhD candidate in law law at ANU and last year's Commonwealth Pacific Young Person of the Year and it's really great to have you back on Triple R, Bell. Thank you to have me back, thank you. And so Bell, the, the election campaign season's been uh, underway for some time now. What have we seen so far from the major candidates? Uh, Dylan, yes, it has been a very... Uh hectic time up in Papua New Guinea. We are seeing the, the major parties coming out and they're, they're really out there trying to win the, I guess, the power away from Peter O'Neill and his uh, coalition. Um, those that are seemingly at the front line now is the um, PNG National Party, uh, Pangu Party, uh, and um, I guess other, other, other parties who are, who are part of the PNG's almost 42, uh, political parties. So now there's this tussle going on to really see if, if they can overpower, uh, Peter O'Neill's, uh, People's National Congress. So, I mean, we're familiar in Australia with, you know, two major parties and, and then, of course, minority parties and, and crossbenchers and the like. So 42 parties. Are there um, two main ones, the People National Congress Party and also the National Alliance Party might be um, two that people will know about here in Australia, but are there other significant players? Yes. Um, People's National Congress uh, was or is Peter O'Neill's party and National uh, Alliance, obviously, uh, Sir Michael Somari. But then uh, now we now we have the um, people. I mean, um, PNG National Party, which is led by um, the former Attorney General who was sacked by Peter O'Neill, uh, Karenga Kua, and we have. Um, uh, the deputy opposition leader Sam Basile leading the uh, Pangu Party. So these are these are two of the oldest parties as well in in Papua New Guinea uh, during the early days of independence. And now they are being, in a way, uh, being put to life again by these leaders. And listeners might remember that uh, Peter O'Neill did face some instability last year. There were allegations of corruption flying around and also uh, particularly, I guess, strong student protests which resulted in in police firing upon students. And Peter O'Neill copped a lot of criticism around that time. What's the feeling in PNG currently? Is is he a a popular leader or or is he a little bit still on the nose? So, Dylan, that's the struggle with Peter O'Neill's party now. In that, uh, those issues which you've uh, mentioned haven't been haven't been resolved. They're still hanging there. They're still out there in people's minds. And then uh, now, during these elections, his party and his candidates are now struggling to, I guess, put a put a put a positive spin to to their leader, who's been, I guess, uh, publicly. Uh, so it is a struggle for his party, and uh, I think we have 
Uh, we have seen reports lately as well that wherever parties under his candidates, I mean, uh, candidates under his party or uh, current sitting members in his parties, when they are out there campaigning, the community has also shown some um, uh, uh, sense of rejection. So uh, people are, I guess, stopping them as well along the road, telling them not to campaign. Uh, there has been a a a a quiet sense of resentment against his party members uh, throughout the country as well. But, you know, I mean, he's in power, and uh, I think he's, he has the uh, financial backing to, to, to put up a campaign that um, many other candidates might not have a similar advantage. And what are the issues at play, Bell? Because, I mean, uh, I, I imagine, you know, the, the kind of standard um, issues that we also have here in Australia about health, education, law and order, the economy. Are these the main issues in Papua New Guinea for this election? Definitely, yes. Uh, when Peter O'Neill came into power, he he promised free health and free education services, and uh, that was his flagship policy people bought into it. I think people were quite frustrated with uh, say Michael Sumari's National National Alliance Party uh, back in 2012 and I think uh, when O'Neill came in with those social policies they were happy to buy into it but the delivery of it uh, has been a problem. It hasn't been as people expected but that still is an issue the health and education and infrastructure um, access to government services uh, continues to be an issue and I think that is what is on the main policy platform of many of the candidates and parties going into this election and some people who, who vote in Australia would be familiar with essentially turning up on, on one day on election day and casting their vote then. But I understand in PNG that polling is open is open for some time. It doesn't simply happen on, on one day. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the process um, around election time? Surely, Darren. Uh, the PNG election would go for up to two weeks, uh, a week and a half. Uh, firstly, we must understand that PNG is quite a... Um, a, 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 a huge area to cover and um, uh, given that patches of people are living in the more isolated villages and districts uh, it does take uh, a huge amount of uh, time and logistics to actually access them uh, but also the fact that um, the security issues in PNG during the election is a serious concern so they have to concentrate the defense and uh, police force in one area uh, and then make sure that the elections is uh, free and fair and then move that same police force to another area as well and ensure that uh, the same outcome is achieved. So uh, given such a challenge, uh, yes, it is extended over time. Um, yeah, so there's two weeks from the 24th to the of June to the 8th of July. And, I mean, that's an incredibly um, complicated kind of logistical exercise. What happens with regards to campaigning in that period? Because, again, you know, we'd be familiar in Australia, there's a point at which you can't campaign anymore. It's like that's the end, now now it's voting time. Is that is that similar? Is there a point on, say, the 7th of or the 23rd of June where there's no campaigning over that two-week period? Or does it continue through the election? through the actual voting period? I think there is a stop to it, yes. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly what day 
Uh, but I think it will be on the 24th uh, when, the, when, the, when the campaign should be ceasing once the polling is uh, uh, polling's open. Polling will be open in the highlands of Papua New Guinea first, and, and, and then it will move down to the coastal areas. So, but yes, uh, I think there is a stop uh, to all the campaigning on the, on the 24th. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Bell Karma. He's a PhD candidate at ANU and also 2016 Commonwealth Pacific Young Person of the Year and uh, writes a lot about PNG, uh, society and politics. And we're speaking with him about the upcoming elections in Papua New Guinea. And I mean, historically, Bell, uh, there have been few numbers of, of women in parliament in Papua New Guinea. How are we looking at the moment with the candidates? Is, is there any chance of increasing the, the quota of female representatives in parliament? That's an interesting question. There's a lot of female candidates now for this election. Um, uh, I think uh, due to the international uh, influence as well, due to uh, access to more information and public awareness, uh, people are now also believing in women candidates. So we are seeing a rise in women candidates across the country. Uh, At the last parliament, which is this parliament, has... uh, at about three women um, MPs, and hopefully this will be increased uh, for this upcoming election. Uh, but but certainly there's a lot of women now standing, and people are open to them, unlike before. Wow, that's really that's a real change. And also, I mean, last time we had you on this program, Bell, we were talking about the crackdown on student protest, and you were telling us in um, quite detail that students in Papua New Guinea really are uh, revered as the future. Uh, is there a particular party or a particular candidates that the students are getting behind at this election? Will they influence the outcome, the the, the hopes of of students? The students in Papua New Guinea, uh, yes, at the time when we were speaking, uh, some of the student leaders that we've uh, pointed out, uh, those those student leaders have, have also put their hand up to stand for elections, so they are now uh, contesting in their, in their towns and provinces as well. Uh, yes, people seem to be behind them, uh, given that they have shown their leadership at the national level and they have taken... Uh, a responsibility in raising national issues. People are standing behind them. Um, those student leaders, uh, from our observation, they seem to align with uh, with the parties that um, are basically opposing Pete uh, O'Neill's party at the moment. So, uh, if if they're successful, um, obviously we will see uh, them coming under those uh, those those parties that stand directly against uh, Peter O'Neill. But yes, from our last conversation, uh, we have seen a lot of student leaders now putting their hands up and uh, contesting. And PNG, um, Kylie, PNG has a, has, a, has a history of believing in student leaders and um, someone that actually went from being a student leader to the uh, prime minister position was uh, Pius Wente. So he, he was a student leader and then he basically graduated, went to election, and then became the uh, the PM of the country. So we can, we are hopefully going to see something like that happening as well. Uh, I guess within this uh, within this election as well. 
And I mean, you, you spoke earlier about how much effort and resource is put towards free and fair elections and making sure everybody has their um, opportunity to vote. What about the result? Uh, it's likely to be a coalition government, is it? And also, generally speaking, are election results um, accepted and embraced in Papua New Guinea or is there concerns that if um, the incumbent gets back in, there might be some, some issues there? PNG has a has a record of uh, contesting election results. Um, it is one of the most uh, contested um, area of law in Papua New Guinea. Every five years, uh, you could have up to two hundred cases uh, or so contesting um, whoever wins the election. So we are hopefully um, expecting that as well. Uh, I think. The more awareness, the more um, secure the voting process is, we're hoping to see less of that happening. Um, now, with previous elections, um, security and uh, the awareness of fairness uh, and the uh, democratic process of election I think it's been a challenge, and, and, and the government and the, and the international um, parties, uh, let's say Australia and New Zealand, and the others who are now involved in making sure it fair elections, they are now working, uh, I guess, together to, to, to make sure that these, these problems are not uh, there. But I am, I am uh, doubtful that that will completely eradicate uh, those issues that normally give rise to legal challenge and yes after the election well, we should be expecting to 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 see some um legal challenge on those who win the elections as well but hopefully um not as much and i mean here in australia we we don't tend to hear nearly enough about papua new guinea particularly given our shared history and when we do um particularly over the last um three four five years it's been around the issue of the manus island processing center which of course is is set to close later this year but do you get a sense at all from the australian government of, of a preferred outcome from their perspective is there a particular candidate that you think they would like to see prevail in the election that is a that is a very uh, interesting and tricky question, Dylan. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, firstly, I think if if I could say a comment to what you said, and you've said it quite rightly, uh, we we tend to hear less from Papua New Guinea here in Australia when we definitely uh, Papua New Guinea was a colony of Australia for nearly seventy years, and um, you know. There's a lot of sad history. I think uh, there needs to be more done here uh, than what is currently going on. But moving on from from that, yes, um, Australia's uh, interest in Papua New Guinea is tied as well uh, to whoever political party or whoever uh, political personality that is in in power. And Australia would be keeping a close eye on who is uh, or who is uh, who should be a comfortable partner. I think um, it is a it'll be a it'll be a tricky one. I think uh, many of the uh, uh, political parties and candidates up there uh, did question Australia's uh, uh, 
a sense of quietness uh, during the O'Neill allegation uh, when he was going through the corruption allegations. Uh, they were worried and there is concern about Australia being quiet and uh, during the Manus Island process as well, many of the candidates uh, were now standing and parties as well were concerned that uh, Australia is in a way taking advantage of PNG. So these were some of their concern and um, I'm not sure how they will respond if they get into power, uh, if they were uh, in or if they come into from the new government then um, probably it might initially be an uncomfortable uh, place for Australia but eventually I'm st- uh, I do hope that the uh, sad history and relationship would uh, basically amend such tension and make sure that we all work together on a more mutual uh, uh, playing field. Thank you so much, Bell. It's been really um, fantastic to have you back on, on Triple R and we'll really be watching those elections with interest coming up on the 24th of June in Papua New Guinea. Thanks so much. That's right. Look, um, may I just point out something? I think it's, it is quite important. Uh, the, the social media in, in, in Papua New Guinea, I guess, uh, Kylie, if I may mention, it's, it's playing an important role. Uh, and, and, and that uh, may also help in ensuring that there's a fair and open process in the elections as well. And which social, me- which social media is that, Bell? Because I suppose we can follow it from here if people are interested in finding out more. Uh, Facebook, Facebook. There's a lot of PNG, uh, uh, PNG groups on Facebook, who, and then all the almost all the uh, candidates and uh, political parties are quite active on Facebook as well. Uh, so that's been, a, I guess, that that's been a open source for dialogue as well in in Papua New Guinea, and and that would definitely contribute to having a, uh, a fair election. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you again, and um, and we'll we'll speak again hopefully soon. No worries. Thank you. You think it's just me and Dylan bringing you the grapevine each week, but actually Daniel works behind the scenes here and pulls our show together as a podcast. And uh, we've asked him to come on and talk to us because he is a snowboarding enthusiast and he's going to talk about the snow season officially opening this coming weekend. Um, for the last six years or so, he's been working up on the mountains and it's really good to have you, Daniel. And maybe we can start straight away with the snow report. How's it looking? A pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, actually, it's looking uh, the best for opening weekend that it's looked in well since I've been going up to the snow. Um, it's actually opened early for a few resorts, so Mount Buller and Perisher have opened their gates early. Um, there was kind of this uh, neck-and-neck race between who was going to open it first. And, um, <laughs> Ooh, who yeah, won? Uh, Perisher, just with some sneaky tactics. So uh, <laughs> Mount Buller wanted to be the first to open it, and they said, all right, we've got enough snow, we'll open a week early. Then Perisher said, okay, we'll open the Friday before that. So Buller said, we'll open that Friday as well. And then Perisher said, uh, 10 o'clock that morning, all right, we're opening at 2 p.m., not 5 p.m. So they were officially the first to open just wow. And what do you get for being first? Like a uh, ribbon, medal? rights, I guess. I, it's like, like a scoop, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Like Because the, um, they were opening for free, so it's not like they were making any money or anything off it. It's just a free ride for everyone. So I was actually yeah. up in the air on Thursday. I had to go up to Sydney and um, was looking out the window, and there is a dusting of snow across the mountains. I was yeah. quite impressed. So this is... Um, 
um, Thursday last week. So they officially opened last Friday, did they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, Queen's birthday weekend is the date that they set every year at Mount Buller and uh, most of the other resorts as well. And um, they rarely have enough snow. Uh, like I have seen it where opening weekend there is enough snow to snowboard, but uh, it's like 50-50 where um, sometimes they just don't have enough snow, which they have a whole bunch of people up there ready to snowboard and then uh, nothing to ski or snowboard Just go to the pub instead. Yeah, that's what happens that's right. and everyone uh, has a really good time uh, for the week that there's no snow, I Indoors. guess. Yeah. <laughs> and so so there is enough snow there for, for snowboarding? Yeah, currently at the moment. Um, Buller invested in a snow factory, so they um, it's basically just a giant shed that they've kept cold enough to produce snow and they've just got a hose snaking out of it to pump snow onto the run now and um they've got enough snow for the opening weekend which is great and yeah how, how does that go is, is is fake snow kind of i mean i i'm a real novice at this i don't know a lot yeah. about snow i've probably um seen it about three or four times in my life but is, is it kind of uh you know the same or similar to to real snow how does it stack uh, up yeah nothing's as good as the real thing as a bit of fresh power but um in australia we don't get a lot of power so um, it's a necessity to have the snow making, but it's it's not as good. But we got to take what we can get when we're in Australia because we just don't get the snowfall. So, are we like the the world's leaders in fake snow? Because I imagine other mountain resorts around the world don't have this problem with not having enough. Yeah, well, every well, most resorts have some kind of snow making for when the times get a little bit tough. But um, I would sh- say that Australia uh, has the most snow making per you know square inch of skiable terrain um because yeah we just don't get the snowfall so we do need it and um it actually really helps and um keeps the snow season open longer in the end as well so yeah because we probably finish you know most snowfall by end of august and then it's still open for a month month and a half after that uh, where the temperatures are constantly rising as well so all that uh, snow melts coming off and they've got to constantly be topping it up whenever they can um, yeah, so they're keenly watching the thermometer as soon as it hits zero degrees, they're pumping out the snow. Really? And so yeah. the idea is, so if you get the fake snow out there, then if you get another dump of snow, it's more likely to kind of stick and hang around, is it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The more snow on the ground, the longer it takes to melt and, um, the more, the longer we can have the snow, uh, ski season open. And I mean, you've, you've traveled to, to other slopes as well, yeah. um, internationally. And I mean, you've been back to the, the Australian slopes regularly over the years as well. But I mean, often Australian skiing and Australian mountains are maligned for not being nearly as, as big and grand as, um, you know, ones in Japan or in Whistler, for example. And a lot of Australians go to, go to those places. Um, but is there anything kind of or something special about the Australian slopes that you think we get that, that other places don't have, even though they're not as big? Um, I think because we have uh, we don't have um, the snowfall that other places around the world have. I think it's just the passion that people have to <laughs> to get to get it done. Like um, I've seen people like uh, you know end of spring when there's hardly anything left, just like oh I see, I see two meters of snow there. I'm I'm just going to ride it like and uh, you know re- just really loving it. So I think it's um, the Australian passion for it is. Um, is probably what makes it so good, like, you know, the atmosphere up there. Like British people when the sun comes out. Yeah, that's just it. Make the most <laughs> yeah. of it. Yeah, it's the opposite way around. We're waiting for the, the cloudy days or the cold days. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I know there is a real, I mean, for people that love skiing, watching the weather report is what you do yeah. and people will 
dump work for a week to head up if yeah. it's actually really snowing. That's kind of common, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like I've um, I've got friends who are basically like meteorologists now just because they, they love watching the snow report and seeing what's coming. And um, I, I can't do it personally. I've been burned too many times where I've looked at it and I've tried to read it and gone, oh, this, this looks like a good time. And then I get up there and it's sunshine and grass and I'm, you know, I'm left high and dry, literally, because um, I'm top of a mountain when there's no snow. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too good at it, but definitely um, there is a large number of people who love watching the snow report and, yeah. uh, you know, booking their time in by the letter of the snow report. So it is like it is World Environment Day. So I'm going to ask you a World Environment Day type question. So if if people are becoming kind of mini um, meteorologists as they look at the, the the snow on the mountains, is there a, a real sort of environmental streak in the people up on the mountains, like understanding that these snowy peaks are kind of melting and we're not going to get as much snow going forward if all the projections are correct yeah like i think awareness of environment is uh on the uptick anyway just um uh among the population in general but um i would say that it's uh there are certain people up there who uh just love the environment but for the most part it's just um there's a lot of people who just want to get the lifts running and don't care how many trees they have to cut down and stuff like that. But, you know, there's also the conservatives who want to, um, the conservative environmentalists who want to, you know, keep all the snow gums as much as possible. And because, uh, the alpine environment only makes up like 0.2% of instra- uh, Australian terrain. So they want to, um, preserve as much of that as possible. So there's, uh, a few endangered species up there and a few, um, uh, trees that uh and you can't cut down trees and um so there's in all the staff accommodations there's pictures of um different types of rodents and things that are endangered and what to look out for because there's the common house uh, mice up there and um then there's like five or six varieties of marsupial and, and marsupial rats and yeah, stuff like that yeah, that you're not allowed to trap yeah, yeah so um there's definitely like a ban on using um uh traps for mice and stuff like that because uh, the native animals can't get into them so yeah you got to catch mice the old-fashioned way i guess piece of cheese on a string and <laughs> wait in your kitchen <laughs> <laughs> i can so imagine you do doing it. that have you done yeah. that before <laughs> no i'll just imagine it then <laughs> and so um so as as a hobby meteorologist and someone who watches the snow pretty carefully given that we've had such a strong start to the season does that necessarily mean that we'll have a really really good snow season this yeah. year um I hope so, but I, I I never know. Sometimes I see like a you know a week of snowfall, and I think oh this is going to be a good season, and then nothing for three months. And um, sometimes the season starts off really poorly. I think uh, three three years ago or four years ago was the best snow season I'd ever seen. Um, we got we didn't actually have all that much snowfall, but it just snowed and snowed for about two weeks straight. And we had a good base. Um, and it just, the weather was right, went for it to snow because often, um, it'll snow and then that'll be preceded and followed by rain. So it kind of washes away any snow that did fall. So, um, yeah, just, uh, the, the snow report is uh, is king up there, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a tenuous employment um, situation too for people if it's just so seasonal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, like I worked as a lift operator and th- thankfully they have a really good EBA and um, really good uh, managers and um, uh, lift operators and stuff that really care about the job and um, treat, treat us really well and we have a, um, a fair go of it up there. But there are other... Um, businesses up there that um, you know they're kind of 
going by on the skin of their teeth, you know, not not knowing when the they're going to get cut and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it was such a good start. Hopefully, people will head up and um, enjoy and not not fly to not fly to New Zealand yeah. instead, or or do both. Yeah. Well, yeah. I went to New Zealand last year, and I'll uh, probably make a snap decision and go there again this year because it was awesome. But yeah, nothing beats being at home. You know, seeing the people that you you know ride with and um, get along with, and then seeing down at the pubs. It's good. Yep. To, yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Daniel Borganti, um, you find him here uh, in the green room every Monday. He pulls together the Grapevine podcast, but he is a snowboarding enthusiast and um, bringing us a snow report. Maybe you can just pop in and give us a snow report through the through the season. Yeah, if you'd like, I'll uh, at the end of the show. Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thanks heaps. Thank you. Earlier this year, and we talked about it quite often on the show, uh, Melbourne City Council announced a suite of new laws to regulate public space into in response to growing numbers of people sleeping rough in the city. But where have we got to with this? Um, not not um, only those residents that are very visibly homeless, but for those that are vulnerable to losing their houses as well. Um, Lucy Adams is manager and principal lawyer of Justice Connect Homeless Law, a specialist legal service for Victorians who are at home or at risk of homelessness and as part of a Churchill Fellowship she's also travelled to nine international cities to investigate other approaches to homelessness around the world and she's speaking at a forum at the Wheeler Centre later this week and it's really good to have you with us Lucy because I think for a lot of people um, that question of what's happening with people sleeping rough in the city is left open. What, where, where, where do we get to with those uh, Melbourne City Council laws that we heard discussed? Oh, good morning. Um, so they're, they're on hold for the minute, subject to, to some further contemplation, which we, we really welcome. Um, what happened was there was these, these proposed changes to local law, as a lot of people heard about. Um, there'd been an increase of people sleeping on the streets in Melbourne by about 74%, so it's up around 250 people at last count. Um, it's a lot of people experiencing a really high and really visible level of homelessness. Um, but that, that homelessness where you, you're sleeping on the street is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we've also got people sleeping in their cars, um, people sleeping on other people's couches, uh, people living in transitional housing or, or rooming houses. So the scale of the problem is enormous in Victoria. Um, the laws were a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to a lot of pressure um, and they went out for public consultation and about 2,500 people and organisations contributed to that consultation, either through their own submissions or through surveys. Um, and 84% of the people who responded opposed the changes to the laws. So it was a really, it was a really strong outpouring, I think, from the community in Melbourne, and that included visitors, residents, businesses, really indicating that although something is being called for and something needs to be done, this isn't what's being called for. So uh, with that feedback, uh, the the submissions committee then has gone and adjourned further until the 19th of July. So there's, there's time for alternatives to, um, to be embraced. 
And I mean, as part of the work you do, Lucy, you um, deal with homeless people through uh, Justice Connect and homeless law uh, in their interactions with the law or when they might find themselves in a bit of trouble when they're sleeping rough and and don't have a roof over their heads. And I think in relation to the Melbourne City Council's proposed changes, a lot of people were concerned about the potential of criminalising poverty. But in in your day-to-day work, what sorts of issues come come up with people receiving penalties or, or fines from living out on the street? Mm. So since we were set up in 2001, this idea of fines and infringements directly related to experience of homelessness has been one of the top two legal issues that affect our clients. So what it, what it means kind of day to day is that when you're living your life in public, you don't have a private place to carry out your private life. And all manner of things that you do can see you issued with a fine or a charge. And it includes things like, we call them public space offences, but it includes things like uh, public drunkenness, littering, swearing, having your feet on the seat, smoking on the train platform, not having a ticket on the train or tram. So all things you're much more likely to be doing if you don't have a roof over your head and you're just living your life in in the public eye. Um, And people can accrue tens of thousands of dollars of those fines uh, throughout a period of uh, homelessness and sometimes accompanied by substance dependence or mental illness. And that amount is, is overwhelming, obviously. So to give you a sense, one fine for being drunk in public is $600 and your income on New Start is, is just over 250 a week. So it's a financial impossibility to pay it. And so is it more likely that somebody who's living on the streets will get a fine like that rather than someone kind of uh, rolling out of a nightclub at two in the morning? Well, uh, look, I think it is. And whether or not it's it's a deliberate targeting, the reality is that if you're you're out in public 24-7, you're just much more, um, you're much more visible uh, to, to authorised officers and, and to police. Um, so even um, if it's not a, a deliberately discriminatory, there, there is just this inevitability that, that you're going to come in a greater amount of contact with, with those officers who are also out there 24-7. Um, and we certainly do see our clients really, really struggling under the weight of these fines. And um, it has a huge personal impact on them um, but it also impacts on the justice system more broadly so that's then um, people uh, dealing with these fines that then are going through our court system and and sometimes three or four appearances in court to really get to this point where there's a recognition that they, they can't pay and the reason they got the fines was directly as a result of that homelessness mental illness and or substance dependence and I mean, obviously, we have laws for a reason to make um, society, to make our community, uh, you know, a, a good place to live in, and and to make us able to go about our lives in the way we want to. But how sensitive are police officers to the circumstances individuals might have when they're homeless and don't have a, have a roof over their head? Is there much kind of sensitivity, I guess, to to maybe not giving someone a fine when it's clear that that you know, mm. one they mightn't be able to pay it, um, and that they're in circumstances that are kind of beyond their control? Mm. Look, there, there really is that recognition amongst a lot of police um, and I think it's a tough job for them as well, um, that exercising of discretion and, and making a call and recognising that, um, yeah, maybe there are options other than fines or charges for responding to these kinds of health and social problems. I'd say amongst police, it's, there's um, 
it's really varied. Like, there's a diverse range of responses. There's thousands of police out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a diverse range of, of responses from them. But I think we also need to remember that if we rely really heavily on our police to respond to homelessness, we are going to get a law enforcement-based response. So we, as a community, need to be investing in other solutions. So obviously housing and housing with support is is the way to solve homelessness. Um, there's also been a recent investment just announced last week that's um, 24-7 mental health responses in the city of Melbourne. So that kind of recognition that police aren't necessarily the members of the community that are best best placed to respond to complex issues of mental health. So I think it is that we need to recalibrate, really, or rethink as a community who we are relying on to provide our response to, to homelessness and um, and health issues. Um, and to the extent we keep relying on police to do it, uh, we're putting them in a really tough position. Yeah, it's uh, seven minutes to ten. Uh, Lucy Adams is with us. She's a lawyer. She works in homeless uh, law. And I wonder, I mean, we, I should have probably cleared this up right at the beginning. At the moment, we're waiting for, the, as you say, the Melbourne City Council laws to be um, looked through. 19th of July, you said, is when we're going to find out what's going to happen. In the meantime, is it illegal to sleep rough in the city? It's not. It is not a crime to be homeless, no. Um, so that there are a range of laws that I've, I've touched on that you're at risk of, of breaking, I guess, if you are experiencing homelessness and some of them have to do... But sleeping rough amenities. itself is not is not one of those... No, and, it's not. And so what about the cities? Like, you've travelled around as part of a Churchill Fellowship and you've gone to nine cities around the world. So had any of those cities got laws that we should be looking at? Well, they do. Some some cities have gone further down that path of trying to use the law as a tool to tackle homelessness. So LA is one that immediately comes to mind and they had some of the toughest laws criminalising homelessness in the world. And it was an offence there to sit, sleep or lie on the sidewalk. And uh, during periods over a decade ago now, they really experimented with relying heavily on that law, charging people, moving them on. And there was one woman I came across and she'd been charged, um, it was 60 times for sitting or sleeping on, on the corner, the same corner. And she was homeless and she had a serious mental illness and she'd done a stint in prison. And then she was back out and back on the corner across the road. So they went down that path. It was um, extremely unsuccessful. And they are now themselves looking at housing-based responses to homelessness. So I think we do need to learn from those examples of people who've tried and tested the road we're now thinking about going down. Are there any cities you've been to around the world that have done or had really successful um, policies and practices in in place that have heavily reduced their homelessness problem? Yeah, there are some great examples. And we've got local examples as well. And most of them really hinge on this idea of housing first, which is moving people into long-term housing as soon as possible. Housing that's affordable, so they pay about 25% or 30% of their income um, toward rent. And they've got wraparound support if needed. So if people have got more complex challenges and it's going to be hard for them to sustain the housing, have long-term support in place. It's called Housing First. They embrace it uh, in parts of the United States. Um, 
in there's a recent report that's come out of the UK that shows they're looking to adopt it as well. We've got our own initiatives here called Street to Home and Journey to Social Inclusion. They've all been heavily evaluated and it's really um, now just accepted knowledge that that's, that is the way to... to to solve homelessness. And I mean, you're sort of pointing to an evidence-based approach, I suppose, but generally speaking, we we do get a kind of law and order response. And are you um, sensing an appetite for, for changing to a kind of more evidence approach here in Melbourne? I think, I think absolutely. So some of those investments, like the recent investment in, in mental health, um, I think recent investments in housing by the Victorian state government, they are all openings and all small pieces of recognition that law and order is not the way to to solve homelessness. That said, there still is a lot of pressure on decision makers and we saw that earlier this year, uh, really heavy and quite negative media coverage and that really, I think, whets an appetite for an immediate response and it, it, this isn't something that we can solve immediately in these investments do take time well we'll be watching this space and um perhaps we can chat to you again after the 19th july and um, once we know what's going to happen here in melbourne thanks for talking with us this morning this has been a podcast from 3 rrr 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au That'd be great. Thank you both.